0: And jumping into deal machine, you'll be able to go out there, start driving for dollars, start pulling lists, start finding the most motivated sellers in your market. And then you can start marketing to them directly. You can skip trace. You can send them postcards. You can knock on their door. There's a variety of things that we can help you out with using our technology. And then from there, you can actually evaluate the deals, you know, comp it, use our AI assistant to help you out there as well. You really to get the full toolkit to go from you know, having no real estate experience to landing your first deal using technology. So it's tomz.com slash deal machine for that free trial. With it, if you go through that link, you're going to get $30 free in marketing credits that cover a couple hundred free skip traces or 50 free postcards, give you everything that you need to start reaching out to sellers. So um, get out there and happy deal finding.
1: So it's it's a matter of what are the qualities in the human being that you value? And what are the qualities that you don't? And I think that those are critical factors in all of our interactions and in all of our transactions. Welcome to the Get Traction Podcast. If you are ready to learn exactly what it takes to become a real estate entrepreneur, this is the show for you. With your host, founder of Traction Real Estate Mentors and president of the Traction Real Estate Investors Association, Tom Z
2: welcome back excited to be opening up season two of the get traction podcast we've got a fantastic show for you today so first off on the line as always is my producer harry duran hey harry hey tom excited to uh, kick off this new season likewise good to be back so and also one of the reasons this is such a special episode is we have a very special guest we have emily gumpert who's been my Settlement attorney for oh probably longer than we all care to talk about. So <laughs> Emily, are you on the line?
1: I am indeed, and I agree.
2: <laughs> Fantastic. So, uh, hmm, Emily, real estate settlement attorney. So, uh, uh, and I've alluded to how long we've worked together. How did how How long have you been a, uh, a real estate attorney?
1: Uh, re- well, I've been in the real estate industry way longer than I was a real estate attorney. I was a real estate attorney pretty much from 19, maybe, you know, you've got me. Um, (laughs) Let's put it this way. (laughs) I was, I, I got involved in real estate as an agent and then a broker back in the 1980s. Then I went to law school and got out of law school in 1995. And I practiced a variety of types of law for maybe two or three years. And then I realized what, what really had my, my biggest interest in where I could walk away from a table feeling everybody had won instead of you had one winner and one loser. So it would have probably been in the, the late 1990s that I started doing real estate settlements. But of course, I had been extremely familiar with them for all of my years as a real estate agent and broker.
2: Got you. Yeah, I know. I met you in the early 2000s. And do you remember how we met? Because there's a good lesson. Yep. <laughs> <in it. laughs> you were one of my uh, buyer's attorneys. And I was in between attorneys at the time. And I, I needed a new attorney. And I, I I told my buyer, I said, Hmm, who do you use? He said, I use Emily. I said, uh, All right, I'll tell you what, On this next <laughs> deal. I didn't have anyone else lined up. I said, Let's use Emily. And I recognized that You wouldn't view me as much uh, as the main client, as your buyer, who you worked with all the time. It took it took a while before we uh, were able to develop that.
1: Tom, I do not remember. I guess it's because you and I have known each other for so long now that you are the you're you're the shining light. Do you remember (laughs) who that other person was? I do. It was Ken. Oh my gosh! Yes. Top buyers for a long time. Right along.
2: Yeah, he exactly. (laughs) He introduced me to you, and it worked out uh, worked out very well. We had a lot of good, um, lot of lot of good transactions. The three of us wound up being involved in. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now I'm wondering. I'm thinking of a couple of interesting things. I know different parts of the country. They um, they call people who settle deals by by different names. You know, in in the DC area, we tend to say settlement attorney or the settlement company. Out West, they say escrow officer or closed escrow. Sometimes it's settlement. It's different in every state and every region. What's the the difference? What what are some of the different terms out there that people need to be familiar with?
1: Oh, gosh. I think you've just really covered them all. Settlement agent, settlement attorney. Here in Oregon, the person who does the settlement is not required to be an attorney. And that's generally the case pretty much throughout although there are some exceptions new york being one of them and there may very well be others that i'm not aware of but here settlement agent settlement officer escrow officer the term officer is used frequently but essentially though they are all doing the same thing and that is making sure that <laughs> making sure that the documents are properly prepared and properly recorded and what those documents are of course is going to be a, a function of the type of transaction does
2: that answer your question? That, that sure does. So, in a basic real estate transaction that an investor would do, I, I'm, I'm focusing mostly on wholesaling. So, when when I assign a contract from a motivated seller to a, a buyer, either a landlord buyer or a rehab buyer, what what, what documents does the settlement agent uh, have to have to deal with?
1: Well, the single most important thing is going to be, not the single most, the two single most important documents will be the initial contract of sale between you and the seller. And then the agreement between you and the person to whom, or or the party, it doesn't have to be a person, to whom you are transferring your rights because those two documents are going to spell out in detail exactly how the transaction's going to proceed. Gotcha, so as
2: as the wholesaler, it's my initial contract with the seller, and then as a wholesaler, it's my assignment contract to the ultimate end buyer. Exactly. And any other-
1: and you do a pretty good job, I might add.
2: Yeah, thanks, it's always been a, it's always been good, well, I had I had very good legal help with uh, with many of my contracts.
1: Flattery I mean, <laughs> <laughs> gets you everywhere.
2: <laughs> it's well, it's true. It's it's kept it's kept me solid and safe for years. I mean, we certainly had some uh, ups and downs on various contracts. There's always a couple, um, you know, a settlement that might throw you for a loop, or some interesting issues that come up.
1: The thing I think that most people forget is that. It's not just between you and either your assignee or you and your seller. There are federal agencies and regulations that change. And what might be perfectly acceptable on day one may not be acceptable. In fact, may put you at risk on day two because of a change in the rules or the regulations. If my memory serves, one of the big issues was the use of the term flip which was in constant use and common usage. And basically it was, you know, a person who has a contract to sell, to buy rather, and then they assign that right to a third party and that was called the flip. Somewhere back in the early 2000s, I believe, and I can't trust my memory on this, but I do know that the federal housing agency described F.L.I.P. in a way that and made it unlawful. So the term as it had been used could no longer be used because basically what you're then saying is I've committed a crime. So stuff like that happens all the time. And it's really essential for your attorney, whoever it may happen to be, to be aware of those changes to protect all the parties involved. Got you. Do you have any other
2: examples of kind of that, that shifting legal environment, screwing things up for us
1: investors? Not off the top of my head, although I do know one area that's always questionable is the percentage of the, the the value of the difference between your contract sales price and your assignment fee. When that gets to be too high, it can raise questions to some third party who may happen to just be aware of it, and it puts people at risk for conceivably defrauding the seller. Um, it, it's it's subtle and it's tricky, and I can't give you a figure right now. <laughs> but that's always something to be that's always something to be aware of.
2: So, being aware of the percent, what percentage of the uh, overall uh, difference in value is the wholesale fee?
1: Exactly, exactly.
2: But there's no hard and fast rule of thumb.
1: Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Now, remember, I'm retired. (laughs) I know it's not for very long, but things happen, as I say, changes occur every day. And that's why it's critical to make sure that your attorney is on top of all of those things.
2: Gotcha. What are you comfortable with then? If, if, there's, if there's no hard and fast rule, there's no hard and fast percentage number, well, what, what are you personally comfortable with?
1: I'm thinking between 10 and maybe 15% max. Anything more than that kind of raises questions. One of the things that I can remember is that the the seller sometimes in the early days when these kinds of transactions were being initiated, that the seller really did not know. And in many cases, they were two separate transactions. Seller sold to the wholesaler and it was a complete transaction. And then the wholesaler sold to the next party. That stopped for a whole bunch of reasons, not the least that one of them was the actual funds available sometimes would not come until the second transaction, and so that already wreaks of you know some issues. How can how, how can a settlement attorney or a settlement agent um, testify that the funds were you know from from buyer, i.e. wholesaler, to seller? were there at the table when in fact they weren't until that second transaction. And the other piece, of course, is when you have two separate transactions, they're taxed separately, and that takes a big chunk out of the transaction. So I think that um, that kind of is where, where the issues became so pointed that it went from being two transactions to one, and then as soon as that one transaction happened, the wholesaler's skill is in explaining to the seller the difference between the amount of funds coming on the table and the amount of funds that are going directly to the seller. And that, I will say, is one of the areas where I have admired your knowledge, your skill, and your, uh, your grace in doing that. It's a, a remarkable talent. <laughs> How so exactly? Explain that for people. Well, okay. So here I am, I'm a seller and I have made a contract with you for a hundred thousand dollars. And now I'm sitting at the table and there's $115,000. Well, 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 wait a minute. Where Where is that 15,000? I don't understand. I have heard the skills with which you have explained. This is not just my profit. That's one small piece of it. This has been as a result of my efforts to market, to try to find the perfect buyer who was going to do with your property what you had ultimately hoped you could do, and all of the other bits and pieces, many of which are very specific to the circumstances of the seller. And I wouldn't necessarily know what these are. I certainly can't abstractly think about, about them. But I have been very acutely aware of how much of a challenge it can be because sellers, well wait a minute hey wait a minute wait a minute where's where, where, why, why, why what's going on why am i not getting all of that so i think it becomes sometimes the settlement attorney or the settlement agent him or herself is somewhat taken aback that this hasn't been explained beforehand and I have, never with you, but I have seen other occasions where the wholesaler has sort of expected the attorney to step in and do their best to explain. And my feeling is, hey, that's not my job. You know? Um, <laughs> so i'm I'm delighted that that has never been my job when you and I have had transactions, yeah, and I think you can understand why that you know that's, that's not the, the the responsibility of the settlement agent. Oh, well, totally. no, it's completely
2: on the investor because one thing I teach people is your the relationship is between you and the motivated seller. They don't know the attorney, they don't know the buyer, and most people sell a house buy and sell a house maybe twice in their life so to get like overly complex or overly complicated is just introduces fear and being scary. So just explain it to them. Like I, I'm a wholesaler, I represent a group of buyers. Some are going to fix the property up and resell it. Others are gonna hang on to it uh, as a rental property. Um, I'm gonna match you with the one that is best. And then it's really easy to explain what happens at settlement. And I say, you know, my fee if they say, what's that in your example is 15000 What's that $15,000? So that's one of the ways we pull some money out of the deal to make it happen. Exactly. So all of which is perfect. I've never found the need to, I know a lot of people are worried about hiding their fee. I have never had the need to hide my fee by doing a double closing, which is what you explained earlier. So you know, two separate transactions. Um, I've always just flat out revealed exactly what I'm doing and had it on the, uh, on the settlement sheet because to me, there's, there's nothing wrong and there's nothing to hide
1: exactly exactly now
2: when i'm thinking of doing things right like that another another big piece of the puzzle is making sure you have uh, escrow money down on the deal make sure you have put some money
1: down to bind your contract Uh, why is that important counselor well (laughs) without consideration there is no deal it's as simple as that there is no contract formed unless there is consideration So, you and I may have an agreement and we may have an agreement in writing, but without that deposit, escrow money, however you want to describe it, it, in general, it's called consideration in law. Without that consideration, then there is no deal. And so, you don't, your seller can walk and you're, you're done. So, the signature
2: alone, no matter how strong the contract is, and no matter how fresh the ink is on the signature, it's meaningless if you don't bother to bind the contract with some uh, consideration money
1: exactly, now, having said that, and being the lawyer that I am, even if I'm not practicing, I have to say there are obviously going to be some exceptions, but they involve lawsuits. Yes <laughs> <laughs> And then why bother i mean that's that's not what you want. You don't want to spend your life litigating, try to force a seller to come to the table, especially if you end up. Even if you win, you've you've lost your time. It's taken forever and you've probably spent more in legal fees than the initial contract called for. So yes, you've gotta have that consideration. Gotcha.
2: Now, Emily, one thing that you've always taken very good care of me on is making sure that I'm protected Um, but also that kind of everybody in the deal is protected for the thing. You've always been conscious of of taking care of all the parties. And you alluded to that earlier when you talked about how enjoyable it was to do win-win transactions. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Well, I try. (laughs) And the reason I think that's important is continuity, a future, reputation, all of these what I consider to be critical qualities of being a human being are are very important. You don't want to walk away from the table. Nobody wants to walk away from the table, either feeling screwed over. You like that legal term, right? (laughs) Um, or, Or abused. Now there definitely are people on this planet who like to walk away with a, I won and you lost but that's actually why I got out of litigation and and went back into real estate because if you handle a transaction with the attitude that everybody's going to come out a winner it affects the way you conduct the transaction and everybody comes out feeling good now how does this affect you you know what what, what are the ramifications well first of all it's good for the settlement attorney because then the buyer the ultimate assign you know the assignee oh I like this attorney I'm gonna bring this person or this agent I'm gonna bring this person my business in the future and then the wholesaler likes it feels good I like this this deal went well people feel good about it I'm gonna keep coming back to this person the seller walks away feeling I have been protected this person is good I will remember that don't know if I'm ever gonna have the opportunity but you never know when a person asks, I'll have somebody I can recommend. So there's not just those three parties. They're the four parties. There's the settlement of you know, person is not really a part of the transaction in terms of those details, but a very important part of the transaction in terms of the, the human contact and the human interaction that's involved. We're not talking about big corporate sales here. We're talking about Typically, homeowners who are generally in some sort of distress. So, I think it's very important to have a person walk away and feel good about what has happened. Corporations don't care. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's very true.
2: And I know it sounds a little schmaltzy and it's, it's wow, is it really win win all the way around? But yes, I've always told people you're not in this business to hurt people you're not going to take advantage of anyone in a deal it's It's when all parties agree the seller is benefiting because you're getting them out from under their problem you're making you're making their problems and troubles go away, and your buyer is happy because they they get a they get a great deal on their hands that they, they can fix up and turn around and make a profit and that's a that's a fantastic thing
1: yeah it's a win all around absolutely
2: yeah, and maybe there's very few things in life that truly are a win all around but this is one of them, and it's one of the things I like about the business.
1: Exactly, exactly, and that's one of the things I like about you. Oh well, thanks, Ann.
2: <laughs> <laughs> if folks can't tell, we we obviously have a
1: uh, a a close relationship, and and it's good. let's put it this way. There are people who violate the precepts and um, standards that we've been talking about up until now in this conversation. People who have absolutely, I I have had wholesalers smirk and denigrate the seller saying, what a jerk. They could have gotten so much more out of me if they had only, you know, And, and that makes my skin crawl. It's that lack of respect that I, I have seen, um, and not only in the wholesaler, but sometimes in the assignee as well. And that I find very offensive. And I have, in fact, told some people that I, you know, they really need to find somebody else to do their deals because I do not want, wish to participate in any kind of a transaction where there is not that respect. Now, having said that, I can say that I have the I have the capacity that I uh, the the, um, the comfort to be able to say I'm not interested in your business. Not everybody does. I don't know, Harry, if I answered your question or not. But that's that's the kind of thing that I would really want to stay away from.
2: Gotcha, Emily. How do you um because that brings up a good point. If we're trying to find a good settlement attorney good settlement agent good escrow officer how do we how do we start to develop that relationship with a new officer
1: well i think the very first question huh that's you've actually you've posed an interesting question too tom i think the cr- first question to ask is first of all have you done transactions of this type in the past and if the answer is no the next question would be I don't think that should automatically exclude them. But the next question should be: Is are you interested in learning how?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> because the fact that I was an attorney, the fact that I had been a real estate agent and broker for 16 plus years prior to that time didn't mean I know everything. I still don't know everything, and. If an attorney or a settlement agent, escrow officer, however you wish to name that person, is not interested in learning new things, keep away. Okay, so if the person says, going back to the first question, you know, have you ever done these transactions? And they go, oh, yeah, I've done a, I've done a few. I've done a couple. I've done six. I've done 10, whatever. The next question then I would ask is, do you like them? You like doing it, and I think during the course of a conversation that you're having with this person, you'll get a, a sense of: Do we have easy dialogue? Does the you know the, is there a yin and a yang here? Is there a, a balance of my conversation, my question, his or her answers? Do we communicate easily? And if there is easy communication, give it a shot. I think that's the very best way to go about making a selection and then you'll actually see during the transaction how that person behaves and how how they bring their experience and uh, to the table got you in fact
2: that reminds me of how we first how i told you when we first met but how i knew about you was uh from a previous transaction of that that was um getting into a little bit of trouble, my uh, attorney, I won't mention any names, attorney at the time, didn't really understand how to do this type of transaction, even though, you know, massively experienced, but not with investor style transactions. And (laughs) my buyer reached out to you when you were on vacation at the time, but reached out to you to basically figure out how to save it. Um, It saved it for both of us, saved it for me as a wholesaler, saved it for him as a buyer. And that was the first, and that's that's why when, (laughs) when I was in between attorneys, because of that, I said, Let's use this Emily character and let's see how she is. <laughs> you definitely turned out to be a character.
1: <laughs> well, one of the joys of um, having a healthy attitude, I think, is just that. You can allow yourself. You don't have to. There's no role that you have to fill except that of a peacemaker. I will i will say that over the, the course of my, my life, my professional and business life, I have had a variety of of what I call tools people ask me what I do uh, or what I did when I was working and I I simply say I am a social worker I have many tools I have a (laughs) law degree I had a a, a broker's license and I also I don't know if you're aware of this Tom but I have a, a master's degree in health and hospital administration so all of these things are really just tools to try to bring a positive outcome to whatever whatever challenge you're faced with whatever challenge you're given so yes i'm a character (laughs) (laughs) i say that in a good way oh (laughs) so do i
2: (laughs) (laughs) so um we talked about some of the the questions to ask people you you know are they are they open to it do they want to learn and get that relationship going correctly. What? are Let's flip that around, though. How do I spot a bad one? Is it is it just that they don't have any open mindedness to learning something new, or are there are there certain warning signs that might tell me I'm dealing with a bad attorney?
1: Well, there are a couple of pieces. Absolutely, the first time when someone says, mm, "No, I really am not interested," well, that would be enough for you to say, "No, I'm not going to do it here." But if they say, "Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm interested," And then you go through the experience and you you see that the person is not, they're not answering questions at the settlement table with either confidence or comfort to the person who's asking the question. Now, sometimes this is based on lack of experience, but other times it's based upon the character of that person. Not that they're evil, but that they just don't have people skills. And I think, Tom, in this kind of a a setting, you have to trust your own feelings. I mean, obviously, if someone says something really, really stupid, and everybody at the table knows it, and maybe even the person who said it, that's a clue that nobody could miss. But generally, I think there's a subtlety in terms of how people act, the way they speak, whether they're paying attention to the person who has asked the question, so that as they are responding to it, whether that person looks as though they're really getting it, and then caring to say, I'm not sure I explained that correctly. And that's another sort of example. Instead of telling somebody, well, you didn't do it right, the way to do it is to say, I don't think I got your, I don't think I answered your question correctly. Let me try again. Or is this what you wanted to ask me? And then rephrase the question in a way that that person will get it. And so if that's not what they really wanted, they'll be able to say, oh, no, no, what I really meant was such and such. So these are, I think, skills that you acquire as you mature if you're lucky uh you know like a 21 year old is not likely to have the same people skills if you will as a 31 year old or a 41 year old 51 year old 61 year old 71 year old and i'm not going beyond that but <laughs> <laughs> although i am beyond that <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't know if that answers your question um properly no that
2: does and i i would i would add I, mean, I do the same thing with doctors and most people. I think it's a great skill, not just for, for picking out a, a real estate settlement attorney or an escrow officer, but just life in general. Anyone you have to deal with in a professional capacity, if they, if they can't coolly and calmly answer your questions, if you can't see the gears moving in their head, if you can't sense that they actually understand what you're saying and are, are coming up with the right answer, then, the, then they're not the right person for you.
1: Exactly. Hmm.
2: Interesting.
1: Interesting. And that's also true, I think, for people that you will be assigning to. Sometimes you meet someone and they're really interested and you go through the transaction and you realize, hmm, this is really not the way I like doing business. And so you would just not really reach out to that person again. I don't know if you've ever experienced that <laughs> a couple of times there's been people I okay. have promptly
2: promptly removed from the buyers list and uh, or you know sometimes we just finished the transaction and it was like great wonderful no d- don't call us we'll call you
1: exactly exactly
2: where <laughs> <It's just, laughs> I'm moving on because there's something I just don't like there it happens because people are people yeah well, that brings me to a good question. Then, what um, what are some of the things you dislike? I don't want to say hate, uh, dislike about working with real estate investors. Some of the pet peeves you've had over the years.
1: I'm not going near that one with a ten foot pole, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> just just briefly, I mean, we and I think I, I mentioned this before. I mean, if somebody is arrogant, and this is not. True only of investors. Just this is human human qualities. Some people are arrogant. Some people want to walk away from the table, not just winning, but feeling that they bested everybody in that win, and having a certain attitude about that. I, you know, I don't like that wherever I find it, whether it's in the buyer, the seller, the the, the wholesaler, the the attorney, for that matter. So it's it's a matter of what are the qualities in a human being that you value and what are the qualities that you don't? And I think that those are critical factors in all of our interactions and in all of our transactions. We can't always rely on them because sometimes we won't know the answers until we've gone through a process with someone. You know, there are people who do a pretty good job of hiding some of their basic instincts and basic character, Um, qualities let's say rather than defects but after one or two transactions you get a sense of whether a person is going to be upfront and going to be honest and going to be caring and careful and respectful and if you've got those qualities you're good to go and if you don't so long yep (laughs) that's my
2: 10 foot pole (laughs) i got you it's interesting again that's kind of a a life lesson mixed in as well because I've, it, you know, one of the reasons I've been in this business for so long and enjoyed it and continue to find it fun is I've managed to filter out a lot of the jerks. Uh, I, I just don't, I have no interest in doing uh, business with jerks. It, I found nothing that wears you out faster than having to constantly fight with people. So anyone's got too much fight in them, it's not worth it. There's plenty of people that actually want to do the business and do it right. Why, why focus on the, I could think of some worse words, but jerks.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's exactly, exactly where I was going.
2: Yeah. It adds to a kind of a happiness and a peace, a sleep well at night, don't have to, you just not,
1: you don't feel beat up and worn out all the time. Exactly. You want to be able to go home at the end of the day and feel that you've been a good human being. You've added something positive to the planet. You've enriched someone else's life. And your life has been enriched as well. Now, I understand that that's not always possible. But that's (laughs) certainly what we want to strive for.
2: Yeah, not 100% of the time, but let's make it uh, very healthy, at least 80% of the time.
1: As frequently as we can. Absolutely. So how
2: expensive is it to work with an attorney if you're a wholesaler?
1: Oh, gosh, I have no idea. I know that one of the things that my sister used to criticize me for was I would have conversations with clients and not bill them (laughs) because most of, most of the money that was generated through uh, a transaction, quite frankly, comes from the title insurance. Now this is something that probably, I don't know, if another attorney were the editor of this conversation, they might want to edit out.
2: But yeah, most people don't know that, but that's okay. Let's hear
1: it. <laughs> the settlement attorney or the settlement agent, unless they are a salaried person from a larger company, and that salary would also be a function, I think, of how much business they generate. But the sale of of title insurance. And I'm not deprecating this, mind you, I'm just explaining this because I think title insurance is critical. And I, and if we want to go into that conversation, I'm more than happy to, to take that direction as well. But going back to your immediate, immediate point in terms of paying, you know, how much should you pay? So a lot of attorneys, settlement agents I don't think can do this, but a lot of attorneys um, will charge in addition to whatever, settlement fee there is, they will charge for conversations, legal advice they have given, even if it's in connection with this particular transaction. I did not do that, uh, unless there was some very compelling reason to do so. Because I felt that, A, I want to be able to educate people as much as possible, so that the next time they find themselves in a similar situation, they'll be able to navigate it with a little more discretion and a little more grace and a little more skill. So, I'm not sure that I I don't necessarily criticize attorneys who, who don't do it the way I did. All I know is that it didn't make sense to me to charge people uh, on an hourly basis, so to speak, for advice that would be in the normal course of events from the inception of the transaction until the final final closing. I don't know if that answers the question.
2: It does because the I and just to clarify for everyone, the bulk of the money that a, a settlement company makes is the title insurance binder. They get to keep
1: that, correct? Right. Well not the binder, the title insurance fee. The binder is is the title insurance fee. Yeah. Yeah, my bad on the terminology. Okay. So yeah, and that
2: was it. That's why when I when I think about it in terms of, you know, what if I paid you over the years as a wholesaler, you and then and, and and the firms you work for made good money from the transactions that I brought to the table. Although none of it was actually money out of my pocket because the the fees are being split between the buyer and the seller, of which I wind up being neither. Mm-hmm. And the bulk of the money is coming from the from the title insurance fee, which is uh, an expense to the buyer as well. So I was kind of bringing the money to the table but it wasn't my personal money as the wholesaler it's one of the for Correct. me that's one of the beautiful things about wholesaling
1: Yeah. have there been times when you have purchased property i'm trying to remember and then you did the, the development and resold it later on
2: occasionally i tend to mostly uh wholesale it as i go i'll do an occasional mm-hmm. rehab, uh, an occasional rental but i'm i primarily like to just sign my contracts and move on.
1: So did you or do you think your listeners would have any interest in what title insurance really is and what it does?
2: It's both. Yeah, let's hear it. You have kind of a, uh, you know, do a brief little uh, seminar on it. (laughs) A brief,
1: now now (laughs) you're asking me to be brief. Okay. Every jurisdiction, of course, is different. What title insurance, Essentially, does is it tells your purchaser that I am assuring, I am ensuring that you have full complete 100% claim on this piece of property. There is no one else who has a claim on it. And if there is, I will defend your rights to it. This seems like, you know, what's the big deal? Well, here are some of the issues. Every state, well, not every state, most states, and certainly this is true in the District of Columbia and Maryland and Virginia as well. You had rules whereby um, a husband, a male could own a piece of property, and if he were married, even if his wife were not on the title, she might have a claim. One of the reasons that you sometimes see deeds going from the grand tour, a single man or formerly married to so-and-so and now divorced, pursuant to, and then they'll reference all of the papers. Does any of that sound familiar, Tom, as I'm saying it?
2: Yes, very much.
1: Okay, so the reason that is done is to trace the chain of title to make sure that in fact, that title insurance is not gonna end up uh, creating a lawsuit. Okay, now we have the situation where I'm gonna say, John Doe, a single man, grantor, hereby conveys to whoever, a single man, all that piece of property, et etc, cetera, et cetera. Well, guess what? John Doe wasn't a single man, or if he's single now, he was married, and his wife may or may not have a claim on that property, or he has children, or the property really wasn't to him; it really was to him and his brother who both inherited it when his grandmother died 50, 60 years ago. You can see how convoluted this can get. Yeah. So that chain of title, particularly in jurisdictions where rules change, community property maybe once existed, but it no longer does. Death certificates may or may not exist. Title changes were never made. Property is still in the name of um, you know, person A, who's been dead for two decades, and now we have to find their heirs. So all of these potential complications are why it's critical to have title insurance. And as I was going through this, I am remembering that the individual through whom we met had a deal of this nature, and it took us two years. To track down all of the heirs. And we had something like 12 signatures on a quit claim deed that they quit claim any interest they had in that piece of property. And it took us two years to track down all of those people. So I, I think in today's world, those kinds of complications may not be as frequent, but they're there. And they represent a the potential loss of your rights to a piece of property if you do not have title insurance.
2: So basically always have title insurance because the one time you need it will make up for all the other times that you bought it.
1: Absolutely. And again, as you had mentioned, this is the this is paid for in well, in most jurisdictions, but not all, it's paid for by the purchaser. In some jurisdictions, it's paid for by the seller. And I'm sure in some jurisdictions that split, I'm not familiar with any of those, but I know that there are jurisdictions in which the the seller pays for it. The state of Florida, for example.
2: Gotcha. And the main thing there is, you don't have to worry about who pays for it, that's the job of the the closing officer to do that. Exactly. Which is one of the reasons you wanna make sure you have good people that follow the letter of the law, federal, state, and local, they follow the letter of the law to a T.
1: That's it in a nutshell.
2: I've always viewed it as kind of, um, I don't want to say hiding behind, but let's say standing behind the, you know, your law degree, all those licenses, the, the the need for them to be legally compliant. I've never taken a deed at a kitchen table. I never want to have anyone sign over property to me at their kitchen table. I always want to do it at the proper office of, of a settlement company, settlement agent, that way, it, I know it's done right, and all the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, and we are 100% legally compliant with every agency we need to be compliant with.
1: That's one of the reasons you're so good at what you do.
2: <laughs> well, thanks, Emily. Exactly. Try to think that. if I had any other questions for you. Mostly, uh, is there any need to pay an attorney a big retainer, or can I just pay as I go?
1: That's a complicated question, and I wish I could give you a simple yay or nay. A lot's going to depend upon the nature of the seller's situations. In general, I would say, you know, pay as you go. And actually, the wholesaler, him or herself, is not the one who is paying those bills. They get paid by the seller and the buyer for the closing fees, unless there is some really complex reason why um, there has to be a lot of legal, a lot of legal fees. And the other piece to that, Tom, is if you retain me as your attorney, I, can, I mean, very specifically, just as your attorney, I cannot, in good conscience, act as a settlement agent. Because a settlement agent's job is to enforce the terms of the contracts to make sure that they are complied with, whereas my job as your attorney would be to represent your interests above all else. But when I'm sitting at a settlement table, my job is to represent the interests of the transaction, which means all three parties. It's tricky. It is which is one of the
2: reasons why we've always worked so well together was because even though you were representing the the transaction and making sure everything was done right, we tended to be in agreement that that's the way we wanted it done. And there were times where afterwards we would have a conversation about you know what happened or why or a different way of doing things or, or things that would need to be added or adjusted to my contracts to make sure that, it, that we were properly and fully compliant.
1: Do my best. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Well, no, it wound up kind of spanning the best of both worlds. In fact, there was a <laughs> quick, quick story on that one. There was one time where one of my buyers insisted on bringing his own uh, attorney to settlement. And I was not settling with you that time. I was settling with somebody else. And then guess who walked into the room as my buyer's attorney? It, it was you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: my so (laughs) I thought, well,
2: isn't this interesting that your, you know, his attorney is actually my attorney, but I was, um, conscientious at the time that you, you know, your client in that case was him and not me. And so we got, we went through that transaction, it was done. And I remember afterwards when all was said and done, the transaction was fine. And we, we stepped out in the hall and I said, now that, now that you're off the clock, uh, man, your clients are a real pain in the butt to deal with. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Did I say, did I agree with you?
2: Um, You smiled politely. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't, I didn't wind up selling uh, to him again, just because it was. uh,
1: Yeah, that must have been before I got to the place where I would say, I don't think you're a good human being, or you're my kind of human being anyway, then I won't work with you anymore. <laughs> but it wouldn't would surprise even... me if I didn't work with that person again either. <laughs> <laughs> Just the whole
2: thing, it was one thing after another, and all the little demands, and I was, man. And then of, of, all, things, of, of all things, what I found very amusing <laughs> was during that settlement, he took a very strong objection to one of the clauses in my assignment contract. Like it really irritated him that I had this clause in there. And I, I was having a hard time not laughing because the person that put that clause in there was you, Emily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, well, of course, it's well written. Your attorney wrote it. And, but I couldn't say anything at the time because I was being
1: proper and polite. <laughs> and then
2: afterwards, we had a good
1: Oh Lord, the things, the things. What what was it that that wonderful quote from? uh, I think it's Julius Caesar. The good men do, the evil men do lives after them. The good is oft times interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. (laughs) (laughs) Not bad. Well, look, we've covered uh, a
2: lot and a bit of law lesson and couple rabbit holes opened up, but I think we managed to um, define what they are. If, if some of the terms were technical, you know, the benefit to a podcast format is if you didn't understand something, if something was too technical, the listener can listen again. And uh, because I think you gave uh, fantastic information to Emily. Thank you.
1: Well, you're more than welcome.
2: Fantastic. Emily, anything else we should add?
1: I think not. I mean, I'm sure, however, that as the people who listen, hear it it may generate ideas and questions in their minds and that i mm-hmm. suspect is one of the things you hope for
2: oh absolutely! because happy to you know those questions that come up i tend to cover them in trainings and it's it's helpful to see it's helpful for other people to see questions that other people have because most people wind up with the same questions in the end thanks emily
1: all right thanks emily. That's both you for now.
2: bye Thank you very much, Emily, for an awesome discussion on the legal aspects of real estate wholesaling. As always, we'll have full show notes at GetTractionPodcast.com. That's GetTractionPodcast.com. Looking forward to talking to you guys again on the next episode. It's Tom Zeeb signing off.
1: Thanks for listening. Your next step is to visit GetTractionPodcast.com. There you'll find all current episodes and a link to download a free copy of Tom's DealFlow Cheat Sheet. Happy wholesaling!